Welcome to this edition of Rail Group On Air, the joint presentation of Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is William C. Vantuono, Editor-in-Chief of Railway Age. We are very pleased to welcome today some of the heavy hitters in the commuter rail industry. We have the Commuter Rail Coalition. From there, we've got Kellyanne Gallagher, who is the Executive Director, Jim Derwinski, who is the chair of the coalition, and Jim is executive director of Metra in Chicago. Mike Noland, who is president of the South Shoreline. Mike is vice chair of the coalition. Stephen Abrams is executive director of TriRail in sunny Florida, and he is the secretary treasurer of the coalition. And Joe Giulietti, who is the Connecticut Department of Transportation Commissioner and a founder of the Commuter Rail Coalition. Welcome, everybody. We are living in interesting times. If you can give me some idea of how, how the CARES Act funds are being deployed. We, the transit industry, as you know, was, uh, was given, uh, at least in a, a first, uh, first go around, there might be another one, $25 billion. So uh, how are you folks uh, dealing with that? Well, the, the first uh, task is to use the money to, to just pay for immediate COVID expenses, you know, all, all the transits have had to redouble their efforts to sanitize their equipment, their platforms, their operation centers, you know, lots of expenses that were incurred immediately. And then, of course, uh, we've all, in most cases, suspended fares. So we've been able to use CARES money to really plug the gaps in some of the revenue streams that we were relying on that went away with the coronavirus. So those are some of the immediate uses for the funds. Joe, on the state level uh, at, at, the, at the DOT, there's a lot of, a lot of passenger rail. How, how, is, how is that being deployed? Yeah, it's been a problem in, in some ways because uh, in Connecticut, we not only have high-speed rail and we have ferry service, we have Shoreline East, we have the Hartford Line, we have Metro North. Uh, so between them all, we got a total of $490 million in CARES Act funding. And what Steve was pointing out is true. You know, we've lost the revenue stream coming in, but we still have crews that are out there. We have work that's ongoing, and we still have to do the enhanced cleaning, the other protective measures that are going on. So our expenses continue at the level that they were at. So where the first allotment is going to cover us at least for the calendar year uh, to make up for the fare box revenue. But as I said, it's, it's a mixed bag because even though we got money for Shoreline East, Amtrak got money in a separate line item. Hartford line never got it because it's considered a high-speed rail line, so it didn't fall under the CARES Act. So I've got a letter into the legislature now, and I'm calling on the FRA as well for some help on that because I've gotten no funding assistance for the Hartford line. So it's a, it's a mixed bag at best, but um, you know the truth is that obviously we really appreciate the money that has come so far, but we're working hard to try and enhance that to be able to go beyond the, the fiscal year that we're in right now. How is the Hartford line considered a high-speed rail line? That, that uh, Over 90 miles an hour. It's over 100 miles an hour on the Hartford line. It was put together not as a commuter rail line, but as a high-speed rail line. Uh, so we have a – the nice thing is that 
after serving in the past on the high-speed rail, I actually have a high-speed rail line that, that works here in the state of Connecticut and is successful and has had the highest ridership growth. And in fact, the FRA just gave us a grant to put on additional trains on it because it's viewed as a success story all the way around. Well, it, it certainly is well-deserving of some of this uh, CARES Act money. Um, Jim Derwinski, Metra, one of the largest commuter rail systems in the country, serving Chicago. Uh, tell us about your experience with the CARES uh, funds. Similar to what Stephen said in uh, Florida, immediate uh, cleaning needs, um, enhanced cleaning. Obviously, taking the opportunity here to look at new technology with with regard to cleaning, so that's uh, it's a good thing, and it's uh, it's going to be what we need in the future. And then pretty much plugging the uh, revenue hole. That's uh, pretty much what uh, CARES money's done for Metra in Chicago here. One of the stated purposes of using the funds uh, by Congress when they enacted it was to keep workers working. So I, I know that's been a, a very good source of revenue to ensure that people at the railroad that are doing essential jobs are continuing to do them, which in our case of the commuter rails is to get other essential workers, such as healthcare workers, to their jobs. So it's not a, a good use to have a ripple effect to ensure that essential workers uh, continue to get where they need to go. And also in the case of uh, uh, maintaining, uh, in our case, we maintain the tracks uh, for uh, freight so we can keep the supply chain moving. So it has other implications beyond just uh, to plug gaps that we found in, uh, in our operations. Mm -hmm. Mike Noland, uh, South Shore, uh, actually also, uh, well, the official name is the Northern Indiana Commuter Transportation District, or NICTI. Right. Uh, I, I imagine your, your experience has been, uh, been similar. Yeah, it has. Um, like Stephen, um, we're maintaining the tracks as well for our freight partner to keep commerce going. And we have a lot, the only people really are riding are our healthcare workers. So we're moving them back and forth to the Chicago ho hospitals. Um, and it takes our employees to keep the railroad running to do that. Um, we're plugging the revenue gap. Uh, we're also looking at, Jim mentioned new technologies. Um, we're looking at things like uh, trying to push cash off the trains. So one of the things we're going to use for the CARES Act is for our TVMs, we've always only accepted debit cards or credit cards. We're now going to convert them to, to accept cash. So we can, we're, we want to push as much cash off the train as possible as, you know, mm -hmm. cash can transmit the various diseases and viruses. So we're looking at ways to um, utilize the funds. Uh, we're looking at the technologies like, you know, UV lighting, uh, fogging equipment, uh, anything we can do, as Jim mentioned, to enhance the the sanitization efforts so that when we kind of flip the switch and people start returning to a more normal post-COVID-19, whatever that means, our customers are going to feel comfortable that they can come back safely. And that's going to be a huge part of our marketing campaign um, as we start to encourage people to come back to the system. Yeah, Bill, I wanted to yeah. jump in for a second because, mm -hmm. you know, what you've just heard also went along with what we had to immediately go out and do was find protective 
um, you know, equipment for all of our employees. So I know we were working on it jointly because it was, you know, issues with getting the national stockpile. We're all out there trying to go and get masks. We're trying to come up with what are the best cleaning solutions. I've got towns along the rail lines. I had bus providers that have to help wheelchairs onto the buses, and we were desperate to get that PPE out to them. So that way there we could show that we were making every investment we could to keep them safe. And Steve is exactly right. We were all trying to keep everybody employed. Uh, it's very, very difficult to make up for a workforce that's necessary to operate these types of systems. But the other end of it was we had to expend an awful lot of our energy and our money making sure we were doing everything we could to protect them, protect the riding public, and give people this, the safety assurances while we're going through something we've never gone through before. Yesterday, we saw something from the New York MTA uh, that they are now employing ultraviolet light. Uh, they're, they're flooding the, uh, the rail cars, uh, subway cars, and the buses, and it's good, eventually going to be uh, rolled out to uh, Long Island Railroad and, and Metro North, uh, just fl flooding the cars with ultraviolet light, which does kill this uh, virus. Are you, are you folks looking at that as well? Yeah, that's what I just mentioned, Bill. We've yes. got, we're, we're doing it. We're looking at the same kind of equipment MTA is looking at. Um, we're also hoping that um, the uh, private sector industry will, will figure out ways to make it um, more directly applicable to our equipment, whether it's new car, rail car orders have that built into the lighting systems mm. or, um, you know, hospitals have these little robotic devices that go into rooms. Uh, it, it, there's, there's, I'm not aware of anything that really fits our industry, but I think there's an opportunity there uh, from the manufacturing industry to get some UV lighting kind of a, a technique or, or equipment uh, that we can use. We're going we're gonna to buy some stuff, but it's really not geared to our kind of system. Kellyanne, I was going to ask you about as far as the, the uh, equipping new equipment or retrofitting existing equipment with built-in ultraviolet lighting or other other means to sanitize cars. That's something that uh, uh, the coalition's focused on? So um, back in uh, early April, we got all of the chief safety officers together on the phone to share uh, what they had discovered to be working with on their systems. Uh, best practices, lessons learned more often than not, what was cheap, what was uh, effective in killing, the, uh, the, the virus on touch points and um, what, was, what worked most quickly so that they could get uh, cars turned around quickly and back out into service. MTA, as you know right now, MTA is really taking a lead globally, not just domestically, but globally in the application of UV lights in, uh, in the rail cars. And um, the system they're using right now is uh, running at about $5,500 per tripod UV. That was over a month ago now that we got that number. Um, and the products that they've found to be very useful were uh, a disinfectant called Lemon Quat, and then their antimicrobials um, called Gold Shield 75 and Zuno. These can be dispersed throughout the car with just sort of a one of those backpack um, uh, canisters to 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 spray the disinfectant um, and they, they're finding that to be uh, effective and they're they're they've been doing pre-application tests and post-application tests to uh, identify how long each of these uh, um, 
is effective on a touch point throughout a rail car. Um, and then uh, I know that they are also looking at their next procurement of cars, possibly having a UV system built into the car. And um, that would likely be twenty dollars to $30,000 per car. It goes a long way toward recovering people's confidence in the safety of traveling in a confined space like a rail car when they know that it's been uh, disinfected by a UV light. A plug to LTK, they are not a coalition member, but the LTK has been leading that charge for MTA in New York. I've uh, uh, heard about a, a technology that's actually been used uh, in the, uh, on the industrial side uh, for large warehouses and like food processing plants. Uh, it's, it's dangerous stuff, and, uh, but, but it's, it's very effective. It's chlorine dioxide. Um, and um, it's it's uh, it's activated by water, uh, and you you would activate it by putting it in the H in the HVAC system uh, uh, in in a car. Of course, that's that's uh, out of service. Obviously, nobody on it. Uh, shut the doors and let this thing run for thirty minutes, and it's uh, and and the car it, it kills anything, uh, including humans. So there can't be anybody <laughs> in the car. I, I've have you heard about anything like that? I would turn and say that at the airports, we know right now what they're doing is um, they are spraying down the, the terminals and everything else, and that the MTA, Kellyanne is right, they, were, they, were, they still are doing a spray that's going through the cars. Yeah, there's a, uh, a spray that they can actually, it, it, it's, not, it's, it's not as deadly as what but it is something that will adhere to the under surfaces um, throughout the car. So you don't have to, you can just spray it uh, universally and then it adheres to the under surfaces. So that was very effective. And it, I believe it takes a lot less time than the half an hour that. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. But what it doesn't take away from you is you still have to go through and e-clean the cars and you still have to wipe down it because it leaves a residue that mm -hmm. is still on there and it's effective at current killing germs, but you've got to get to the underlying dirt and we still got to go through with the e-cleaning. So um, we, we are watching, obviously the MTA operates the New Haven line for us. Uh, so uh, we're actually their, their customer on the New Haven line. So we were on the call on this this morning because we're all looking into what is the most efficient way that you can keep, a, you know, right now we have a luxury that with only 5% of the ridership out there, you can pull more cars out of service to go through a deeper type of cleaning. But we also have to be prepared as things come back on, how are we gonna be able to respond and what is gonna be the most effective cleaning not only at the cars, they're asking for it at the stations, all the surfaces that you have to touch to go and get on. You know, can we make it touchless as much of what you heard that Chicago's talking about? Same issues out here. How do we do it in a way that we're going to avoid the contact as much as possible? I just wanted to, uh, to touch on positive train control. You know, this, this, this pandemic hit in the middle of the big push to finish up PTC and get, and, and get, things, uh, get things rolling. Where do we stand on uh, PTC at this point? We have about seven months to go, which isn't a whole lot of time. I'll jump in uh, Chicago, Metra. Um, we're actually on a watch list. Uh, there's four community railroads that were listed by FRA on a watch list. Um, and definitely, you know, a concern, but the coronavirus hasn't slowed us down one bit. We're still on target to finish by the end of the year. 
um, and where we stand on it is that just everything keeps moving. One of the things that we did, you know, just to touch on the coronavirus is we actually separated out very quickly all the critical workers that are going to make this happen. And, and that was one of the first signs that we wanted to obviously make sure that if we lost any bit of our workforce that's going to get this done, that would put us in jeopardy. We were counting very much so in, in, in Chicago on a um, software update that, that's required for one of our lines, and that was delivered on time, uh, uh, April 30th. We're making some modifications to it, and we continue to train our employees. So we had to, uh, you know, for engineer training and stuff like that, we had to really take that down to a different level, um, not putting people up in the cab to train anymore, but shifting them right into uh, training simulators and all the social guidelines that you have to do. But on, a, on the PTC front, we, we are still charging completely forward on schedule to finish by the end of the year. Uh, Chicago by far is the most complex uh, region. We have 14 rail partners that we have to work with. We're, we're already now running tenants on our line. And I know that's, that's um, some old news, but uh, it, I'll take that lead on that since we are on that watch list. That's why I didn't jump in. I, I didn't want to make uh, Jim look bad by telling about our progress on <laughs> but I'm glad to hear that he, that he's going to meet the deadline. And, and we are too. I mean, it, it, uh, I guess it does depend on where, how far you were going when this coronavirus hit, but we were well on our way, you know, well into field testing. Uh, our two tenant railroads are, uh, interoperable with us. So really it's just uh, the safety plan submittal and, and the home stretch to December 31st. I understand the Federal Railroad Administration has been quite helpful uh, under the leadership of uh, uh, Administrator Batori, who is a 44 uh, year career railroader. He, you know, he understands what's going on. I, uh, would you agree with that? I'll step in on that. I meet with him monthly on the Northeast Corridor Coalition. He's extremely involved in what's going on. We get updates. We actually have not only the rail systems, but the vendors on those calls going over where the progress is. And in terms of what's going on here in the Northeast Corridor, we actually, if there was, I'll call it one of the, the benefits of the uh, pandemic is that with the loss of ridership and a reduction in the number of trains, we were actually able to shut down the service on some of the lines and accelerate some of the projects that were out there, getting more of the work done that needed to be done. Mm -hmm. So we, again, are in a position of reporting that we will be on time on the positive train control moving forward. And it is a collaborative effort between all the railroads here in the Northeast and the, and the Federal Railroad Administration. I've, uh, I've talked to several of the freight railroads, uh, the class ones on, uh, on, on these podcasts, and they've all pretty much said the same thing that uh, they, since the traffic is down uh, for the time being, uh, they have been able to accelerate some of the track work. Uh, some some uh, uh, engineering, uh, state of good repair engineering projects have actually been moved up and they're, because they, they have the track time. They're taking advantage of the track time to do the work. Uh, I, I can see the same thing happening on the uh, commuter rail side here. 
happening on the commuter rail side. It's happening on the highway side too. We're giving out work that would normally only be able to be done at night is being done during the day. And we're giving out a lot longer lane miles in order to get construction done. So yes, it's being done on the, on the rail side. It's being done on the highway side. And I should have mentioned as well in this Northeast Corridor Commission that we have the freight side there as well. So we're all working collaboratively mm -hmm. on it. We are, as an industry, uh, we are emerging into, uh, hopefully sooner than later, and into what looks like a, a, a new world, uh, a changed world. People working at home, uh, other commuting patterns changed, uh, just, just a whole different scenario. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about, a lot of thought, I think, gone into where does public transportation fit? Uh, into the mix here and how, in your cases uh, with commuter rail, you know, what are you looking at? Are we looking at fewer people commuting because they're, because they're going to be able to work from home or maybe people that would be driving in because uh, they have to be in an office in the, in, in the city? Maybe they would, be, they, they would switch to taking the train. Your thoughts, what, what, what are you looking at uh, going forward? Well, that may be all true short term, but at least down here in South Florida, we were never a victim, that much of a victim, I should say, of the telework phenomenon, because ultimately, as much as we try to attract high-tech and biotech companies to our area, and sometimes we succeed, but ultimately, we're a, we're a service economy, we're a construction economy, uh, we are quite obviously a tourist economy, and those are all jobs, especially as they come back, obviously in the case of tourism, that, you know, you, you can't work from home and uh, operate a hotel. You can't work from home and wait tables, et cetera, et cetera. So very true. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're, so, you know, obviously we have to have some concern over the, the uh, uh, teleworking, but uh, in the end, you know, when the, hopefully the vaccine comes online. I mean, overdevelopment, traffic ingestion, they are a part of our lifestyle down here. And <laughs> I, I think we'll, uh, so there'll always be room for transportation alternatives uh, and growth for transit alternatives such as the uh, rail that we provide. Joe, do you have any uh, any uh, thoughts on this? Uh, I, I would my, my my one thought is that the uh, as far as commuter, uh, we like to call it at the at railway age, we like to call it regional commuter rail because I I, I think regional is more more accurate to, uh, description. Uh, you're not just using the, the rail system for commuting, but for uh, for general general transportation and maybe. What we're looking at, obviously, you need to maintain a state of good repair. Rolling stock needs to be replaced and or upgraded. But maybe some of these massive projects, uh, and I'm talking about the big cities, Gateway, for example, these multi-billion dollar projects that uh, are moving ahead very, very slowly. Uh, do you have any thoughts as to what maybe these projects won't be, I'm not saying won't be needed, but maybe they won't be as urgent? What do you think? Well, you I know, know this is a bit, a bit controversial, but it's something that needs to be addressed, I think. And, and I think that's why you chose me, because you figured I'm the most expendable, so why don't we give him the controversial question? Anyway. No. <laughs> well, anybody can answer it. But, yeah. uh, no, actually, and I was, looking, I was waiting for Chicago to weigh in, because, you know, what you've hit on, you know, we're looking at it not only from the standpoint of what's going on with the commuters. We've already found out that a lot of the businesses that are in New York 
by looking at the fact that they may not be returning a lot of their people until after Labor Day, not May, not June, but maybe after Labor Day. They're, they're watching what's going on. And we have seen the direct results of both what happens when, you know, things that you couldn't do before, you know, a lot of I'm with a state that there wasn't a lot of acceptance of working from home. Well, they suddenly had to find a way to accept working from home, and we have been very effective at it. That may have an effect on even office leasing in major areas where they are finding that they can get productivity levels, but you can't replace going in. And, and Steve is right. Mm -hmm. The service industry, when I, we shut down the Waterbury line and started busing it, we've had the highest ridership ever on the Waterbury line because there's so much service industry associated with those people that are getting on the buses. So there's no clear picture. And going back to what you're saying about the big projects that are there, Amtrak right now is evaluating how long it's going to be before they're back to the same levels of service that are there. You know, we've watched the drop down to 5%. The, the numbers from April are in. We've only, on all three lines going in, it's at 5% right now of normal ridership that's going in. We're starting to see some growth within the intrastate, but the interstate, there's a lot of people that are still apprehensive about going into, you know, some of the big cities, like going into New York with the issues that are still on there. But you still have to look at it and I look at it from the standpoint that if you want to get cars, it's five years to buy cars. You want to turn around and do these projects, they're multiple year out. If there was ever a time to try advancing some of this work, it's while the ridership is down and you keep it moving. So I still feel you don't lose sight of the vision. And that's why even we formed a seven state coalition up here in the Northeast looking at how do we impact each other. And I'm still getting the request for, can we expand our shoreline east to go all the way into Rhode Island? Can we expand it all the way up into Massachusetts? So we're starting to see the requests from what I would have called when I started in the rail system in the early 70s. You know, all of this was integrated. And then little by little, a lot of these systems started falling off. Now we're seeing a resurgence in the need for that. And then COVID hit. So I don't know that, you know, I know I'm not ready to go and say the world is not going to come back to some sort of normal. We just don't quite know what the new normal is going to be and how we're going to balance that. I would think that the future would be to expand the footprint of the rail systems, go, uh, go out further, reach new places. Jim Derwinski in Chicago, uh, maybe that would involve a big capital project to, to build, uh, build a system that, that, goes at, that, that connects all the endpoints, something like that. What do you think? Yeah, I think I, I agree with Joe that we can't lose vision right now. And then, um, you know, touching the endpoints is, is a piece of it. When uh, Illinois passed its uh, first capital bill in a decade last year, um, inside there, there was uh, money set aside for uh, train service to Rockford to Chicago, the Quad Cities to Chicago. There's a study in Peoria, Illinois, uh, to see if rail service could go there. So I agree with Joe. There's There's a calling for it. I think there's another uh, element to this whole thing. In, in Chicago, there's been many studies done. What if Metro didn't exist? And they use that as a as a as obviously a measurement. And they said that we would have to create 27 more lanes of traffic um, patterns uh, each rush hour. 27 lanes. I mean, we're we're not going to be knocking down full communities to try to do this. So I've often suggested to people that even if half only the ridership comes back, that means okay, now we only have to build an extra. 
uh, 13 lanes of traffic out there. Once again, this is an impossibility. I think the pattern's going to be that people aren't going to be your standard five-day-a-week riders for a while. And so the, I think commuter industry as a whole is going to have to be very flexible, maybe offering different fare products out there to identify what is the um, – you know, what is the calling for us? In our case, um, what, what do we do very well? We get you from here to there without having to sit in that traffic. And we have the best environmental footprint for any mode of transportation in the world next to you walking. Um, we can't, you know, you can't move 1,700 people on that much fuel and have that much carbon come out comparative to all those cars that would be on the road. So I think we have an opportunity here to start really messaging a little bit differently because what's going to happen naturally is people are going to start moving back to their their work locations um even if it's only two or three days a week and they're going to jump in their car and they're going to be sitting in that traffic and they're going to be wondering why they're sitting in that traffic and that's where i think commuters really got to come out and, and remind people of the benefits that we provide so i agree that the long-term stuff should not be put on hold right now uh, we need to continue to grow the system for the reasons that Everybody wanted to come to the systems in the first place. And the reason we've been seeing a lot of different dynamics, people, one thing that may happen, and I, I can't necessarily speak to any knowledge in the Northeast, but one thing that uh, we're hearing and seeing and trying to look for signs are there may be a resurgence of people leaving cities, maybe moving more to suburbs, uh, a little bit of a spacing issue. And certainly in Chicago, we're cognizant of that and looking for that because that, that obviously is our core market. And Bill, it's Mike Nolan. We've got, you know, of those big projects, I've got two of them at about a billion and a half dollars that are about to start this year and next year. And um, we've already seen, all of us have talked about that a lot of my, I, we've, I've already seen, I've got the same customers, but I don't have them five days a week. Some of them I have three or four. We're going to see more of that. I, I'm sure that's going to happen. But where we are, the, the expressways are so congested, if we're more competitive, maybe it's even more of a, of a rallying cry that we need to look at ways to continue to, mm -hmm. to compete with um, the auto uh, and make our service all the more competitive. Drive down commute times, increase the frequency, uh, make it uh, more competitive for the rider with a choice and, and there's plenty of opportunity, I think, there to attract folks back to the commuter system. One of the big Wall Street firms, uh, Cowan and yeah. Company, put out a report, uh, and, and the report was based on the uh, business prospects for, for, for Wabtec Corporation, okay, which has a huge transit business, a huge, uh, huge footprint in the transit world. And, uh, and, and these guys at Cowan said, uh, Public transportation, and in fighting a pandemic, public transportation is not the problem, it's the solution. And they went as far as to say that, that what we as a civilization have, are doing to the environment, encroaching on natural habitats and put, uh, dumping carbon into the air and, and, and other, all the other nasty things that have been going on for the past uh, 150, 200 years, that this is contributing to disease uh, because we, we, have con we have contact with animals and things that uh, there's there's uh, there's viruses that may be stuck in Antarctic ice that are that are going to be released after thousands of years and God only knows what what we're facing public transportation cuts down on global warming uh, which in turn helps the environment which in turn helps 
with controlling outbreaks of, of, of diseases like we're facing right now. And uh, you know, we know that as an industry. The question is, how do we convince the public and the legislators and the, the, the folks in, uh, at the state and federal level that, that, that control the flow of the dollars uh, that what we do is, is essential, not just for getting around, but for living. You know, Bill, you, you hit on it from a couple of standpoints. First off, yeah, we're, we're all looking at what, what has this done? What has it changed? And what Mike was talking about, we were already dealing with as an industry, watching how the patterns of commuting are changing, how, pe how people are responding are changing. And if you look at any of the maps that are on CNN about the cities that you can now see from outer space because of the fact that the air is cleaning up, you know, it's, it's there. And you've also hit on one of the reasons why there was a commuter rail coalition formed because, you know, we were looking at it. We knew we had to have a voice out there because that voice was fading in terms of making it clear to the legislators just how relevant this is. So if you, you know, Kellyanne, I've been waiting for you to weigh in a little bit more on the fact that the education came down. One of the big reasons we came together was to make sure we're getting that message out there because it's a good story to tell and it's a story that lends itself very well to what's going on right now. So Kellyanne, I'm going to turn it over to you and tell, so that you can use this again to talk a little bit about why it is that we're spending as much time as we are trying to make sure that our voice is heard in Washington. We knew going into this that that the regions that are served by commuter rail in this country are the highest G GDP producing regions. And um, it, it tells the story of how necessary the commuter railroads are to the recovery of this country. Whenever that comes, um, the cities that commuter rail serves have to regain the vibrancy they had before or the economy will lag even longer for recovery. Um, we said that a year ago, We've, we said that five years ago, but now I think uh, it is, um, it's something that the Hill will hear and it will resonate in a way that maybe it didn't so much before because everybody's telling their story. And, and now, uh, now it's, you know, it's right there in front of your face. These cities have to come back online and uh, the movement of people is essential to that. We were a little flat-footed on our response to this pandemic, even though we knew a pandemic would eventually confront us. So maybe the plea is, could we please prepare in advance for this next calamity of climate change? And then you uh, speak about how uh, transit and commuter rail in particular, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the role that we play in that, because as opposed to other forms of transit, where the commuter rail is the only form of public transportation that actually takes cars off of the road. We have a, we have a sign posted at uh, our flagship uh, station that 400 cars equals eight buses equals one train. Mm -hmm. so with uh, transportation being like 70% of the oil barrel, that's what you have to address. And that's what rail is in the best position to address. And Bill, I want to yes. add on to that because Steve reminded me as he's going through this, you know, we made the argument, um, you know, Steve, Steve at the time was the chairman there and we were talking about how to best invest in mass transportation. And one of the things that commuter rail offered was that 
it is one of the least expensive ways of going and providing for mass transit. When you look at the various modes that are out there, it's less than half the cost of, of any of the others, including whether or not you're looking at a rapid transit bus system, whether or not you're looking at, you know, um, putting in a, in a light rail vehicle, a heavy rail vehicle system. All those systems are much more expensive. So going back to your first thing about when we're looking at projects going ahead, because we've got to come out of this thing and we've got to invest wisely. And that's one of the things that we're looking to do. And I know we haven't stopped. You brought up about whether or not you tie in the ends. I sat in a meeting today talking about where can we make the best expansion? And as we're bringing it back on, tie it in so we can actually expand out the systems instead of relying on the old models that are there. And I know Steve's got to be looking at his expansion opportunities down there in South Florida, okay? Because there's you know a lot coming that way as well. And it's an area that's ripe for expansion. And I can't wait to see what he's going to do down there. An important consideration here are our uh, freight railroad partners. They're obviously part of part of the mix here. Uh, uh, not not necessarily for for systems like like New Jersey Transit, for example, but for Metra certainly. Most commuter rail systems are expansion. They rely on access and capacity. Uh, so it's it's a it's a it's a delicate balance between freight and and passenger. Kellyanne. What are the coalition's plans to to uh, work with organizations like the AAR, okay, and the the Short Line and Regional Railroad Association? Work with our freight freight railroad partners. We met with Ian and some of his leadership team uh, a little over well about a year ago, I would say. One of our our first Washington fly-ins, we we had a sit down with with Ian and the team there just to let them know the why you know, why we exist and, and what we're aiming for in big picture terms. And we've um, sat down with, with Chuck as well over at the short lines. Um, I think we've got some common interests to pursue, but we also have some uh, interests that might, um, might re require a little bit of negotiation. Um, I, most of that's going to take place on a railroad by railroad basis, but yes, no. um, we are a public service. Uh, our operations over the tracks that they uh, manage or own is always going to be a, a, a delicate dance. Um, and especially if we've got interest in expanding service for uh, commuters that are in a particular region, um, there's a public need. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. And if yeah. he wants to talk about yeah, what's would... going on with his partners in, in Chicago, He's got the most delicate of all dances. I don't know if I call it a dance, but um, <laughs> it certainly it certainly keeps you on your toes. Um, I think we always have to recognize that there's a public interest, and we also have to recognize that there's also um, a benefit that needs to happen both for the uh, freight partner and the public. And so, you know, when you talk about expansion of service, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm taking your capacity. Maybe there's just distinct things that can be put in place, sidings, um, windows of opportunity, um, things like that, 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 you know, unlike Amtrak that uh, has the ability to, you know, use the leverage that it got through Congress, we have to negotiate things and, and we have things to offer them. They have things to offer us in Chicago. I have this blend where we own some of the track. They own some of the track. I know the same thing applies at a lot of the commuter railroads. The, the way these things were built was kind of pieces and parts of what was left and you know, what you had to use. But, but at the end of the day, if we, we work together and I think we're transparent and fair about things, 
talking about how we could help benefit them. Like we're doing this big project down in Chicago now. We call it the 75th Street SIP quarter improvement project. And um, it's massive. I mean, CSX is uh, going to jump. We have six different tracks that all come together. Like, like any intersection, only one vehicle can go at a time. And if your vehicle is two miles long, well, then it takes a long time for that vehicle to go through. And right now uh, we operate with what's called like a Chicago protocol, which means passenger gets preference. But the idea of working together in Chicago with the CREATE program, which is really a brainchild of the AAR, um, we were able to pull together 14 different partners to fund something that's really remarkable. CSX is going to fly uh, over these uh, other four tracks, and they're putting such an investment in it, they're taking their two-track railroad that typically crosses that grade, and they're turning it into a three-track bridge. I think it's these partnerships that Chicago's demonstrated are necessary is where the other big cities are going to have to go, because in these partnerships, there's a little bit of, okay, if you guys do this here, but we do that over there, we both win. And there's a public and private investment into these things, which clearly that's some of the direction that we're seeing from uh, federal side. Well, Chicago, I think, is certainly, uh, certainly a model for, uh, uh, for freight and passenger cooperation. Uh, you know, uh, in my, my nearly 30 years at, uh, at, at Railway Age, I, I have really never heard of, of any, any negative uh, uh, or contentious relationships coming, come, coming out of the Chicago regions. It's all, it's all, about, uh, uh, it's all about cooperation. The CREATE program was, has been in place now since, what, the late 1990s. And um, yeah, there's a lot of work has been done. There's a lot, lot more work to do. But uh, so far, it's, um, it's been highly successful. I think one of the things, too, and we touch this sometimes, you know, as these lumbering long freight trains come through, all the communities that they're impacting. So the more and more and more that the communities, i.e. the public sector, start seeing the benefit of, okay, with a flyover here or more infrastructure there, they see the investment into the freight rail network to get that train through their community to not have to have the great crossings. It, that's, that's the sales part of it. It's not just the commuter railroad. It's really how, how the um, getting together and working with the communities is, is the giant investment. Like I used to tell people, or as I tell people, I wasn't around when they uh, invented the uh, highway network, but when the interstate system came up to a railroad track, they didn't put crossing gates in, they either flew over it or they went under it. And it's, now it's time to start looking at the rail-to-rail crossings and figuring out how that will make all of us benefit. The, the freight railroads are gonna operate at uh, much less expense if they can continue to move their trains and they're not sitting there waiting. So, I mean, there's, there's clear benefits that just need to be explained. And that way the proper uh, government investment can be put into these projects and get the private side investment as well, and they, they, they can move forward. Create program, once again, like you pointed out, it's been around for a while and it works. Yeah, and certainly with, with the railroads now, uh, uh, at least the class ones uh, uh, implementing their various versions of uh, everybody's favorite acronym, PSR, <laughs> uh, Precision Scheduled Railroading, we've got uh, much longer consists in some cases, uh, trains operating slower than, uh, you know, network velocity. Uh, uh, there's different ways to measure network velocity. What has your experience uh, been? Let me start with Stephen at, uh, down in Florida on TriRail, uh, CSX and, and their, their, uh, their PSR. Has that, has that affected the TriRail operations much? 
Well, what affects us really is what the cargo that they have, you know, the rock trains and other uh-huh. cargo that, that uh, can, you know, wear on our, our tracks. That, that, that's uh-huh. our biggest issue at this point with the freights. We do a good job uh, with them coordinating uh, windows. Obviously, as a commuter rail, we run uh, during the, the um, daytime business hours and they can schedule more trains uh, at night. So that that's less of, a, of an issue in coexisting with them than uh, just uh, you know, working with them to maintain the track so that we can all have safe uh, travel on our corridors. Joe, in, in Connecticut, what has your experience been uh, work, working with the railroads uh, on, and their, their uh, operating scenarios under, under precision scheduled railroading? Well, Bill, first off, this came into heavy uh, discussion when we were talking about the thing that merged us together, which was the positive train control mandate. Uh, When that came out, we all had to look at what was going to be the effect, how were we going to put this thing in. It was a great big unknown, and it forced a lot of collaboration between both the, what I'll call the private sector and the public sector. And I still remember down in Florida, it was Jeb Bush that turned around and said, you know, we have to invest in some of these private railroads when they serve a public purpose, and he called it an investment of public money into private railroads for a public purpose. So the truth of the matter is we have to make it work, okay? There's still, you know, neededness, you know, items that have to get in. There's car loads that have to make it into these city centers. There's, you know, there's times when it's chlorine. There's, There's all kinds of issues that have to go back and forth. And what we're all forced to look at, and particularly where I'm sitting right now, is how do you make it work for everybody? And that's where I think Jim is right. You know, as we looked at the positive train control, that's where they started talking about what was that going to have on the supply network, on how that network was going to be able to move. You know, what are we slowing it down? How are we going to be able to increase it? And how do we both handle it going forward? And Steve, you know, when when TriRail took over the dispatch, it not only had to take over the dispatch with a focus on the passenger operation, but also how do you utilize it in a way that enhances the freight movement through there? And Dallas found the same thing when they were dealing with the Southern, I believe it was the Southern Pacific, and they took over a local dispatch. They actually found that they were able to help the freight movements move much more expeditiously through the city centers. So I say what it is, is that we've opened up a partnership that that partnership is going to continue. And that's why Kellyanne was right. One of the first things we did with the commuter rail coalition as well was sat down with the freight side to make sure that they understood that we're looking at it holistically. It's an infrastructure problem. It's an infrastructure problem that hasn't really been dealt with since the 50s. And this is our opportunity to take a new look at this and we have to make it work for everybody that needs it. Jim, in in Chicago, what, if any, uh, issues have you come up uh, with uh, with regard to uh, railroads like like CSX, for example, or Union Pacific uh, implementing precision scheduled railroading? Has that affected Metro operations uh, at all? You know, I'm going to say no. And I'm going to say no because the numbers don't support it. Um, We kind of, we have what we call a budget of freight delays a month. And we've been uh, more so than not uh, beating that budget uh, month after month after month. Now, obviously, there's a lot of stuff happening with COVID right now and, and freight traffic's down. I mean, we had a, literally the lowest uh, amount of freight delays this month than we've ever had in, in, in our history. But it boils down to partnerships. 
and, and just understanding what's important to them and what's important to us and, and where we dispatch them and they dispatch us. It's just making sure that both of us can get through those interlockers. Both of us can get through those sections. And once in a while, there's a little bit of a compromise, but overall, I mean, ideally commuter rail, we're the inventors of precision scheduled railroading by the basis of we run a schedule and that's what the freights are wanting to do. So in theory, what leaves Minneapolis hits Chicago at a certain time and it hits a certain window. That's theory, of course, that's not reality. But I think the constant, constant communication between our people and their people, we literally talk to all freight railroads every single day of the week and just do a status update, what's going on, what do we do wrong, what, what can you have helped us with? And I think just having the local guy, the dispatcher, the guy and the gal, the actual people doing the dispatching and the dispatching chiefs working together, that's where we've seen the best positive results. And so from Chicago's perspective, I have not by the numbers seen any um, disparate impact from PSR. And once again, you just got to look at the infrastructure. One of the challenges now is the train lengths. And that's, you know, sometimes <laughs> a certain segment between this, this grade to grade crossing and this grade to grade one. Yeah, now it's, it's uh, three miles of a train and it's only two miles between the two crossings. So sometimes unintended consequences of running PSR are there's different windows where we can park freight trains and that's that's um, a challenge but definitely a place where once again the constant communication is, is working out those bugs. Kellyanne any closing thoughts here? Thank you for um, giving some attention to the commuter railroads today and and uh, for your interest in the topics that are obviously those that are top of mind uh, PTC and COVID-19 recovery um, and I hope we can continue this conversation as we uh, move through the rest of the year. We can also start digging deeper into the, um, the other issues that we exist, the coalition exists mm -hmm. to, to address. So thanks for, thanks for this opportunity well, today. You're, you're very welcome. And we certainly will continue this, uh, this dialogue. So I'd like to thank Jim Derwinski, Mike Nolan, Stephen Abrams, Joe Giulietti, and Kelly Ann Gallagher, the Commuter Rail Coalition, and uh, uh, our, our Commuter Railroad uh, executives here. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we, we will stay in touch and be safe out there. <laughs>